0: Slate Plus members get early access to our TV Club podcasts about Better Call Saul immediately following the broadcast on AMC. If you're not a Slate Plus member and you want early access, sign up at slate.com slash Plus. The following podcast contains spoilers.
1: Blue lights start a-blank and those handcuffs click. You know who to call and you better call Quinn Saul, Saul. You better call Saul. You'll fight for your rights when your back's to the wall. Stick it to the man, justice for all. Hello, and welcome to Slate's TV Club podcast about Better Call Saul, the new AMC drama inspired by the series Breaking Bad. I'm June Thomas, editor of Slate's Outward section, and I'm here in the studio with Seth Stevenson, who currently is covering the Sernayev trial in Boston. He just got in at the wee small hours last night.
0: Yes, let's please talk about a television show so I can stop... Thinking about what I've seen in the courtroom the last couple of oh days, it was pretty
1: grim. Ooh, I bet. Uh, just a reminder, Slate Plus members get early access to these podcasts, which are posted right after the AMC broadcast concludes at 11 p.m. ET on Mondays. If you're not a member and you want to hear these episodes right away, sign up at slate.com slash solplus. Okay, today we're talking about episode six called Five-O, which was particularly inspired Two-syllable ending in O title. I thought lawyer, lawyer,
0: lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not I'm not speaking June until until Jimmy McGill shows Let up. Let me
1: just give you my card. Spill
0: some coffee on you. Um, yes, that was it. Is we're back to our two-syllable ending in O title convention, which is exciting. Mm. And indeed, this was about the five O of the pigs, the fuzz.
1: Yeah, and it was I'm. It was masterful, wasn't it? I mean...
0: Yes, this was easily my favorite episode. And that's saying a lot because I've liked a lot of these episodes. And this show increasingly comes into its own for me. And and this, it really, this week, uh, you know, I'm I'm sold. I'm in. I mean, this was such a, a fantastically done episode. And it relied so much on Jonathan Banks and the gravitas that he has and and how he can hold the camera and your attention mm-hmm. and really a tour de force performance from
1: him. Absolutely. And it was he was fantastic and it really was a episode that you thought okay this could be used as like a masterclass in storytelling and in you know the writer's art but it didn't you didn't have that feeling when you were watching it when you were watching it like it was just a ripping good yarn and I was very aware afterward that, oh, yeah, that story could have been told in five minutes. Um, but it wasn't that it was stretched out. It was that the anticipation was built up, the, like, the, the misdirections were laid and the, you know, the characters were sort of just roughed up around the edges a little bit. What we thought we knew was brought into question. And then we had this beautiful, very emotional payoff that I think was all the more effective because Jonathan Banks is usually so stoic.
0: Mm-hmm. And you know, speaking of, it was such a quiet episode in a lot of ways because his character is so quiet. And mm-hmm. you know, we open up with him arriving at the train station in Albuquerque. June, I have arrived. Have vi- you? via Amtrak at that train station in Albuquerque? I recognize that train station. In
1: that case, you can ask. You can answer perhaps a question that I did not understand. It was not a like. Why did they do that question from a sort of plotting point of view? But just like, why would he go on the train? Um, You know, from Philadelphia, like, I understand, especially since he kind of wanted evidence that he was traveling, he wasn't sneaking away or anything like that. Why would you go on a train rather than a plane?
0: Well, June, I wrote an entire book about this.
1: (laughs) It's called called Grounded.
0: It's about circumnavigating the earth without using any aircraft at all because it's much better to stay on the ground and you see the things around you. And that Southwest Chief, Amtrak, I'm going to train geek out on you right now (laughs) and there's nothing you can do about it. That Southwest Chief, which goes, so he took the train from Philadelphia to Chicago, no doubt. I I just know all these routes. And then he took the Southwest Chief from Chicago, which goes Chicago to L.A., two overnights, and it makes a stop in Albuquerque. I've done it. It's beautiful. You go through the middle of the desert. The train tracks don't, you know, go alongside a highway. They go right through the middle of the desert. I saw, like, antelopes running oh. next to the train, you know, in the middle of the desert in the southwest. I pulled into Albuquerque on that southwest Downtown G. Albuquerque. Downtown Albuquerque on Christmas Day <gasps> a few years ago. Everything was closed. It was There was a chill in the air, but it was very beautiful. And there were indeed wide open spaces, as Mike said, well said. Uh, what he liked about the West. Um, that, and you meet some weird people on that <laughs> train. You know, maybe Mike Trout of Real Life was on that train. You meet, you know, some interesting people. A lot of times people are doing it, either they're doing it like I was for the experience to do something weird and they're getting a sleeper car and they're just sitting in the observation car and watching the unbelievable scenery unfold, or they're doing it to save money.
1: Oh, it, it is cheaper.
0: It's cheaper if you sit in a seat for two nights and do not get a sleeper. It uh-huh. is indeed cheaper. Or they're terrified of flying. Right. Uh, or they don't want. There's something about that TSA check, or there's <laughs> there's a lot less rigmarole when you get on a train. And so right. you know, we we don't know for sure why he made that choice, but uh, there are a lot of reasons. And but you applaud
1: happen. his decision.
0: I definitely applaud it, and I recommend to all of you. Makes a great family vacation. <laughs> and the- I,
1: can I also take the opportunity to recommend Grounded by Seth Stevenson, a fine piece of nonfiction, available on Amazon.
0: <laughs> there's an ebook version.
1: No, that is not an ad, so let us uh, bring a <laughs> swift end to Sponsored this week.
0: That's right. Um, yes, but so that but that opening, yeah. <laughs> we've taken that detour to Amtrakville. Uh, that opening was very quiet, as much of the episode was, and we and it was, it was masterful storytelling. We see him arrive at the mm-hmm. station. We see him look at the restroom. We know he wants to go in there, and then his his daughter-in-law. We've now learned this woman right. is his daughter-in-law. Right.
1: Which I was so mad at myself for like, oh, she does. If she doesn't have to be his daughter, she right. could also be his daughter-in-law. That was. I really slapped my, I almost literally slapped there myself. Are a in lot head. of different familial relationships out there. Exactly. A lot of possibilities on, exactly. that, on that old tree. I have to say though, it was the when he goes into the bathroom and he gets the maxi pad and he's like, "I'm the janitor." That was just so Vince Gilligan. That was. Yes. It was like super, super Vince Gilligan that it was. It was unnecessary, but it was just a beautiful detail. It showed you so much about. You know the character that he can predict the future. He's he's ten steps ahead of everyone else, and also just that feeling of an empty women's bathroom with a guy in it is just an odd place, right. not menacing but just odd. And and you're it just makes you kind of go wait what what
0: right and you're it's it is so Vince because you're wondering what's going on why is he doing this why would he go into the women's bathroom it's set up it's constructed with no dialogue right. or almost no dialogue yeah. so well and then you learn so much about Mike through that you know he's the kind of guy who knows you say janitor coming in he he knew to do that like mm-hmm. if I for some reason had to go in the women's bathroom right. I'm not sure I would quite come up with that exactly uh with that clever ruse and would you have your quarter
1: seen. ready for your maxi pad
0: <laughs> I might not and I might accidentally buy a tampon instead <laughs> and be like this isn't not gonna cover Ow! this isn't gonna cover the wound at all so just one example among many in this episode of uh, 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 wonderful construction
1: and also I have to say too not to, not to obsess too much on that Cold open, which wasn't that long actually, for for a Vince Gilligan show. But his stoicism, you know, Mike's stoicism is, you know, maybe his his most pronounced feature. And we saw this time that it can not just be like staying quiet when in an uncomfortable situation, it could also mean that he can disguise the fact that he has a bullet hole in his shoulder. Yeah. He can sort of take on a lot of pain. I mean, whether it's literal pain with a hole in his shoulder or, you know, emotional pain or just like, oh, God, this is aggravating kind of pain, which is, I think, in a way, the kind of pain that he's, we've most seen him deal with. That these idiots that make me go through all this nonsense when I'm so much smarter than they are.
0: And later on, we see him play drunk very convincingly. And in, and in fact, we, he's not just playing drunk for the camera. He's playing drunk for those two cops he's trying to fool. And then we see him break down and have a real um, crisis at the heart when he's talking yep. to his daughter-in-law and he loses it, talking about his son and just a, a wide range of emotions from from, from Mike here. Yeah. When, you know, prior to that in the series, we've only seen really one right. emotion, which is contempt for everyone and everything around him. Um,
1: one thing that I was also kind of aware of after the episode, because as I was watching, I was just really carried along by it, um, but that he is so good at the long con and he does see, you know, if you're a chess man, Seth, and I would like, I would, I would. Uh, I play 12
0: dimensional. Yes, yeah,
1: naturally. And but you you had the feeling that, that, okay, Mike Ehrmantraut's character would be a great chess player because he, he just is 10 moves ahead of everyone else. And so even though there w- at the end when he essentially confesses in a way to Stacy and really fills her in, tells her the truth. I did ha- at some point think, well, or maybe this is also a con, like because he is so good, and he, we we've seen how convincing he can be, that he might also have convinced me too.
0: But yeah, Jonathan Banks, what a performance in the, throughout this entire episode, and what I really noticed this time, I mean, I, I, this has occurred occurred to me back during the Breaking Bad days, also, but it really came home this time was the way Jonathan Banks and Bob Odenkirk are so made for each other, yes. because Jonathan Banks has such Gravity. He has such Mm -hmm. a weight to him, such Mm -hmm. a solidness, such a stoicism. And then Bob Odenkirk is just tappy-tappy feet, (laughs) constant talking, so light, darting eyes, um, fluttering hands. And they play off each other so well. There's like Mm -hmm. a classic comedy team, the way that they fit together like that. that. And I realize now... Um, maybe I should have realized that earlier in, in the season. But this is this pairing is what the show is really going to hinge on because mm-hmm. they're so suited for each other. And seeing them together um, is going to be a real joy. I yeah,
1: think. it's you know it's that whole thing that I think we talked about early in the season. Of one of my questions about Beth Call Saul was that Saul didn't always seem to be incredibly competent. Like there was an element of seat of his pants getting by, of uh, kind of, the, that came off of him. And competence is, is in a way, the thing that, on television, it's non-negotiable. You know, main characters have to be competent. And you can't have, uh, you just can't have somebody who's not very good at their job. And now we see, okay, together, they are, you know, they have the best of both worlds. So competence is present, you know. We've now established Jimmy is a smart guy. We've always known that he's quick on his feet. He has some issues, but in combination with uh, Mike, you know, you've got Mike's sort of foresight and uh, Jimmy's slash Saul's uh, spur of the moment, and it's a a fantastic combination.
0: Yeah, and even in that short... So we didn't see a ton of Jimmy in this episode. No. Um, But even in that short... Uh, part that we saw, it was a microcosm and clearly the writers of this show have decided that you know, Saul is going to be a guy who wants to do the right thing but is willing to bend the lines. And again even in this short uh, scene we saw him, it was a microcosm of that because he's, he comes in all oh i'm just going to i'm not going to spill the coffee i'm going to be your lawyer i'm right. going to be am going to be a real lawyer here i'm going to just do this by the book and we're going to get through this like regular people and by the end of uh that scene in the interrogation room he's spilling the coffee because he realizes he's willing to bend the rules so there it was again the same thing we've seen play out episode after okay. episode
1: and and it was interesting to speculate why because yes i think he had genuine sympathy for mike i mean when mike when it was revealed that Mike's son had died, had been killed, Saul gave Mike a look that really did seem like genuine sympathy or sort of, you know, just a like a, a kind of a heart connection, if you will. You know, like it, that was genuine, a genuine moment. Um, but then also he still so and, you know, I, I, you kind of had the feeling that he wanted to know how the story played out. He just was curious. And um, because Mike is kind of withholding, you know, he, he, that often brings out a sense of like what can I do to get this story I'm really curious now but also when he got to the car he still had some rules like don't show me that I don't want to be (laughs) you know a a privy to a crime Um, so there was a sweet it, it was very convincing that it was both curiosity at the same time he did still he knew where the line was and yes it was flexible but there was a line and he asked.
0: He really wanted to know. How did you know I was going to yeah. spill that coffee? He wanted Mike to know. And 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 we know it's because Mike knows everything. that's, yes. the, that's Mike's superpowers. He just he knows everything. He's sort of infallible, in a way. You know, yeah. he's got his weakness, which is apparently a weakness for for drink and maybe drugs. Except,
1: I don't think that that was real. I think it was always a con. I don't think he really had a problem with the bottle.
0: Real? Oh, that was entirely a put on.
1: I think so. I think that. I mean, I'm sh- well. It's hard to. I mean. Again, one of the things that I wish was I wish sometimes that Vince Gilligan would give clarity, because often it's, it, he leaves things open to interpretation. So I don't think that it is, there was like an indication, or if there was, I missed it, but it was my belief that all the time he was thinking ahead, and he knew that he, what was going on, he knew he was going to have to take out or he wanted to take out Hoffman and Fensky. And so he he did a very long con of establishing that he was a drunk because he also knew that those guys would know that he was smarter than them. And so the only way that they would ever open themselves up to him would be if he was very vulnerable, if he was not himself, right? I got. I got
0: a different. I'm not sure. I hundred percent agree with you. I had a slightly different impression, but and partly because of the way when he gets himself sewn up by the veterinarian, and he pays five hundred bucks for the quickie stitches yeah. job, and the veterinarian offers him that like dog Vicodin, right. <laughs> and and you and a see, coat. yeah, and you see the cone, and you see Mike. Kind of struggling with it a little bit. It felt like he mm. says, "I'll just take the aspirin," but then he takes the Vicodin, and he, see, you know, he seems a little relaxed. So it did seem to me that perhaps he was struggling with some demons when it came to narcotics. Yeah. But you know, you might be right. But I, I wasn't sure. I did get the impression that there, he might have had a genuine problem.
1: I mean, I guess if you drink a lot, even if it's a little bit for show. I mean, even if he wasn't going home and then drinking more. You still drink a lot. It still gets in your system, you know, even if you're doing it for a purpose. So I'm sure he would have to kind of fight off, a, you know, it's an addiction is an addiction. He would still have to fight off not the, the level that he'd gotten to.
0: Well, June, we got a listener email, and it was a very prescient Listen, I mean, we get a lot of listener emails, lots in fact. And, and please continue to send your listener emails to podcasts at slate.com. But we got a particularly prescient listener email this week because it was all about Mike Trout in advance of an episode that was all about Mike Trout. So this email is from Donnie Unger, and Donnie writes, Vince Gilligan was once asked how Gus would possibly allow his right-hand man to take odd jobs on the side for shitty lawyer Saul Goodman. And wouldn't Mike have been paid well enough by Gus that he would not have to moonlight? I recall that Gilligan said that it was indeed a structural error, one that sadly did not have a good explanation within the world of the show. The problem was that Mike, as played by Jonathan Banks, was such an amazing character that the writers were compelled to have him play a significant role in Gus's empire. But when he was first introduced as a guy who does work for Saul, who also happens to have some sort of connection to Gus, he was not expected to become a central character on the show. I think that Vince even remarked that he regretted not thinking the character or his backstory through enough at the outset. I suspect that a not insignificant part of the reason that Vince Gilligan wanted to make Better Call Saul a prequel specifically was to right this wrong to make Mike's backstory make sense for Breaking Bad. What do you think, June? Is the entire purpose of this show <laughs> to create more plausible um, st- plotting for in you know, retrospect of Breaking Bad to sort of retroactively improve the continuity of Breaking Bad through creating an entire new series?
1: Uh, I don't think so. However, Donnie's email was very, very detailed. It was very detailed. It was very lovely. But it does remind me of how Breaking Bad, and, and we've even seen it a little bit with Better Call Saul, people are absolutely up in arms in search of perfection, as if perfection was possible in a TV show. I mean, it's a great testament to the show and to Vince Gilligan that people really want to, you know, go to the barricades to fight for, you know, to defend the show when I think a lot of most output on television, people are too willing to say, "Oh, God, it's just TV." I'm not going to hold it to very high standards. Yeah. Um, but you know, I do think that I think Vince Gilligan loves a challenge, and we've seen that he's particularly interested in sort of chronological challenges. He loves to circle around and come back, which he did in this episode too. Um, uh, so I, you know, I think he, I think he's a little bit addicted to setting up tricky puzzles and then
0: you know writing his way out of them he does he creates these puzzle boxes for himself he plays with temporality yeah and and the viewers love it because we you know we get we mentioned earlier in the season we get all these emails from viewers about tiny details that we've missed and it's yeah. because um, as one of our emailers said those details really pay off a lot right. of attention is paid the smallest things can come back later and actually mean something and it's a very carefully constructed show and it yep. is a testament to what a good job Vince Gilligan does with it um, and it's also a testament to the power of television. You know, I remember when True Detective mm. was...
1: So overrated. I'm just going to throw that out there right now.
0: I had occasional problems, but I loved the show overall. Especially, basically, I, I love Matthew McConaughey mm. and... And the um, acting and Woody Harrelson, but um, but I did find as that show sort of snowballed <laughs> in popularity by the final episode, people wanted that show to explain life and the universe and like give them answers to problems they had in their hearts that right. they'd been searching for for decades. Right. I mean, the expectations on that show were so high that the fact that it was like a fun cop show with with a, a pretty gripping ending was not nearly enough, um, you know. And so we'll see, you know. Better Call Saul, I feel, you know, will will count its blessings. If it in fact um, develops that kind of followership, I think it you know it might given how great this episode was, yeah. and, and I think it is gaining attention and gaining fans. Um, I
1: think the the humor. I mean, even in this episode, which was very heavy and really powerful, still had some just some funny jokes. I mean, when as we said, Jimmy had a pretty small part in the in the action. But when he came in wearing his Matlock suit, and they commented on it, and he said, no, I'm a young Paul Newman dressed as Matlock. <laughs> in his summer
0: poplin suit. I love that he's so wearing that. You know, another thing I actually noticed, just to interrupt for a second, is the costuming is so good. You see Jimmy in his summer poplin suit. We've got our Hamlindigo blue over there at <laughs> yes. uh, HHM. And then Mike's clothes, I noticed how how cop-ish his clothes are, even as a civilian, like his short sleeve button-down shirts Mm -hmm. and his clunky-soled black shoes. His costumes, his outfits just so speak to who he is. And
1: there's something, too, about his body. I mean, even for a guy, we don't really get to see the flesh of old people much on television. And I actually don't know how old the actor who plays Mike Ermentrout is, but he, you know, he, he doesn't have a movie star body. He has a body of a man his age. Like two bulldogs in a bag, as they say, And it was, it was striking. I mean, I'm a normal person. I know what normal people look like. But you very rarely see wrinkled flesh on television. And that was, I don't know, it was striking. They hired an actor who can act, not an actor who has amazing rippling muscles and who looks the same as he did in Breaking Bad. They can't do anything with his hair. <laughs> you know, like, he's just Mike. He's probably, he, he's Mike and he's great and that's, he doesn't care.
0: They can't do anything with that schnoz. Well, as long as we're talking about uh, Jonathan Banks, who plays Mike Ermitraut, and what a superb job he did, why don't we listen to a clip of him emoting? So this is Mike talking to his daughter-in-law, Stacy. Uh, about her husband, uh, his son, Maddie, and what and what happened back in Philadelphia. Right.
1: Earlier in the episode, when he first came to Albuquerque, he told a lie. I guess he told a lie. Yeah, he did tell a lie. He didn't just sort of, he didn't remember. He, I think he did say he couldn't recall. But when he realizes that, she, that she's gone, that she called the cops, he finds out from the cop's notebook, and he gets mad. And this time, he tells the truth. I made him lesser. I made him like me. And the bastards killed him anyway. Hoffman and Fensky. If they killed Maddie, who killed them? know what happened the question is can you live with it that last line is really the question of the series right I mean we saw was it only last episode was it just episode five that he drives out and kind of parks out in front of her house and she kind of makes eye contact with him but so far i mean we also know from breaking bad that they must have a sort of they must cover things up because he does get to play with kaylee more but the question that they're dealing with is can she live with it
0: it's like it is the question series for a lot of the characters. Yeah, it's like yeah. what can you live with? What do you? Right. Where are you willing to go? Where does your conscience take hold? And 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 where are the lines for you? And are you going to then redraw those lines? Exactly.
1: <laughs> I have to say there was one thing that did bother me a bit, which was like why the hell did Stacy call the cops because she found six or seven thousand dollars in cash? I mean, I understand she is, you know, she's bereaved. She's driven crazy trying to just figure out what happened. She knows something happened, and she's you know she's desperately trying to figure it out. But nobody in this world, especially not a single mother of a small child, calls when they, calls the cops when they find cash money.
0: That, I certainly don't. <laughs> I found thirty grand in my shoe last <laughs> just, week, and I, I was know. like, oh, "I found twenty run.
1: grand on the subway this morning." But I didn't. call. I didn't. If you see something, say something. But it doesn't say if you find money, call somebody. But that that was just like, no, nobody does that.
0: Uh, well, June, uh, we both agree. Excellent episode. Series is really finding itself taking off i'm looking forward to talking with you about next week's episode and the episodes to come we had one other listener email that i wanted to talk about which uh, i was sort of tickled by so yvonne b from reno which is sort of you know Mm -hmm. i consider that sort of better call sully territory says if you run short of things to say give a shout out to whoever realized junior brown would bring the goods to that hilariously creepy theme song He's not quite a national treasure, but he's kind of a national jar full of quarters you discover on a shelf when you're broke. <laughs> Thank you for that image, Yvonne. That's a delightful Fantastic. image, and it is a great theme song. And Junior Brown, I I had to Wikipedia Junior Brown, but I've now learned that he is maybe the inventor, or at, at least famed for using the Gee Gee Steel. Is it the? It's the Git Steel. The Git Steel. Yeah. Thank you. This is our pr- producer Joel Meyer. <laughs> so um, June, it's been wonderful talking with you. And uh, we're going to hear, My Wife Thinks You're Dead.
1: Okay, can I just, can you just hold my coffee? Oh, jeez, sorry, God. Seth. <laughs> oh, i got to skip, no, people.
0: <laughs> you never called or wrote me, just up and disappeared. Nobody knew what happened, where you've been for
1: all these years. Now trouble's what you're looking like, cause trouble's where you've been. And I can see the kind of trouble you could get me in. You better pay attention to every word I said because you're wanted by the police and my wife thinks you're dead. Seth, thank you so much. This was... uh, It's always fun to talk with you. And listeners, thank you for listening to this Slate TV Club podcast. Join us next time when we'll talk about Better Call Saul, Episode 7. And check out our other recent TV podcasts about House of Cards, The Walking Dead and the Americans, just go to itunes.com slash Slate Podcasts. Our producer is Joel Meyer, and our executive producer is Andy Bowers. The Slate TV Club is part of the Panoply Podcast Network. Bye, Seth. Bye, June.